Uh, hi, everyone. Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm here with Wolfgang and Suzanne, directors of Euro Intelligence in Oxford. I am calling in from Paris. Uh, so, guys, this week, the first thing we wanted to talk about was the second wave that is rolling across Europe right now. After an initial bump, a lot of political leaders are kind of sagging in, in approval ratings now, particularly Emmanuel Macron here in France. We're kind of looking at the political aspects of the second wave right now. And Suzanne, you've been covering a lot of that this week uh, with a focus on extremism and how the far right is kind of taking advantage of these increasingly hostile sentiments towards government restrictions. What would you say, like, what's sticking out to you right now as we enter the second wave? Yeah, I mean, the second wave is definitely different uh, than the first wave. The first wave, we didn't know what was hitting us. Uh, we had no clue what the next week or month would look like, how long the lockdown will be. And also, it was a time where everyone was in a same situation. It was really a show of solidarity. Mm-hmm. And this is all gone now with the second wave. So this is not only a question of the weather, it is also the uncertainty about the lockdown. There's there's even more uncertainty now in a sense that some of the lockdowns are local. We don't know whether the rules apply to this street or this region and or the other. Can we travel or not? All these are kind of uncertainties add up also in terms of economics. Do the schemes cover our employment or also the mortgages that have been um, frozen? This time, all these schemes come to an end in a time where the uncertainty about the second lockdown or the second wave are at their height. So there's much at stake for the people. And of course, it also gave rise to all sorts of conspiracy theories. We saw some some far-right protesters mixing with normal protesters who do think that the coronavirus is actually a sort of a hoax, that um, the measures that the government is implementing is more about uh, limiting their basic freedom of movement and therefore should be opposed uh, the far right makes this argument their own and mixes with these protesters, especially we saw that in Germany where uh, in the last 19 protests of these anti-mask movements, uh, there was always some far right uh, extremists uh, present and there is no longer a separation between uh, flags. So it seems to be that sort of there's a convergence in extremism. How does it affect Macron? At the moment, Macron is keeping the back seat, so he's not really visible on the stage. It's more Castex, uh, the prime minister who's here in the forefront, and his ministers. However, we see that he Macron is losing in the polls uh, in terms of popularity. I mean, he gained through the first wave. He gained massively, in uh, massively, but he came, gained a couple of percentage points in the polls. But he lost all that, and now he's like at the same level as uh, Marine Le Pen again in the polls. I think twenty nine or twenty eight percent. So all the advantage that he had in the first lockdown about real decisive um, government measures, it all seems to be lost. Yeah, you absolutely see that. And I mean, I think that's kind of a classic feature of French politics, because during times of crisis, French presidents always tend to do better. I think Sarkozy got a bump in 2008 during the financial crisis and Hollande somehow uh, in 2015, also after the Charlie Hebdo attacks. But uh, you definitely get the sense here in Paris that people are done with it. Nobody 
wants to follow these measures anymore, that nobody cares. I mean, it's been rainy and miserable and wearing a mask in the rain just sucks anyway. But uh, I was out last night and I was seeing like we went to the Marais and no, I mean, I don't want to knock anyone out, but no one closed their bar at 10 p.m. Like nothing was shut down at 10, that's for sure. And there were police on the streets. Um, this sense of solidarity that you spoke about, I definitely felt it at the time, like during the first wave, you know, I was clapping and I totally accepted that it was normal to have to have a permission slip to leave my own apartment. And that sense is definitely gone now. Everyone is just completely, totally fed up with it, I think. And nobody's really taking these restrictions seriously anymore. Um, and speaking to the economic argument that you were making, that kind of there's so much uncertainty over how long the furlough schemes are going to continue, um, what the economic support mechanisms will be in the future, you know, beyond the near term. I can definitely see how this would feed into extremist narratives, because if you have, you know, a bunch of young people whose lives are just in a state of like permanent suspended animation, of course, they're going to you know, go a little bit nuts with it and wind up finding these, you know, more extreme ideas increasingly appealing. So I think, I mean, I, I really like the coverage that we had this week. Uh, that was looking at the second wave versus the first for those reasons. But Suzanne, I just wanted one more question. I was wondering what you thought of Macron's speech on radical Islam last week. He took a lot of heat for that. I was wondering if you think that heat is justified. Well, that's a big question. Actually, I try to refrain from that. So it's a wider context. Mm -hmm. uh, give you a more of a political reading. I mean, obviously, he's He's using Damien, his um, interior minister here, as a pole um, in order to address issues that are dear to the right and identity in terms of secularism is is his way forward. So he's playing here the Republican card, putting on the table saying education is to be secular and therefore you have to take out all those sim uh, symbols of your religion, like headscarves and all this. But also at the same time, he wants to put in some positive incentives. So he actually puts in money in the local uh, 10, I think 10, 10 billion he wants to put in available to educate in Arabic, in Arabic cultures. Uh, and that would should be part of the educational curriculum. So I haven't see, seen all the details yet and how this is going to be administered. But uh, the local authorities are to be um, some of the main players to put into place this agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of signaling, it's very strong and we had very strong reactions already uh, from both sides. Uh, whether or not it will ever come to fruition is really is another matter because he has to go through so many stages. But in terms of politically positioning himself, it brought him right into the field that actually is normally occupied by the Republicans as well as the, um, the Rassemblement National. And therefore, he wants to make a, a splash on the stage. Of course, this discourse uh, enraged the left part of his party, and you will have to sort of um, counterbalance balance that probably with some green measures just to make sure that everyone is ever happy in his family. But definitely is um, it's going to be in balancing act walking forward. Yeah, because I was reading, I mean, I saw some of the, the spats on Twitter over this and there seemed, you know, views were really, really divided. Someone was writing that it was like a really good example of Macron's like other handism, like his Maybe it's on the other hand, isn't it? Uh, you know, while he was saying kids can't be homeschooled anymore past the age of three and, you know, imams have to be trained um, in France, both of which, you know, might actually be a good idea. 
he was also acknowledging the role that the French state has played in kind of this, this form of economic segregation that has split Muslim communities off from a lot of mainstream French society and kind of kept them in a economically depressing condition. So there were some people arguing that this was actually quite a good speech. Um, and the fact that it upset everyone on both sides of the political spectrum was an example of that. So that, that's why I brought it up. I think it was, was interesting as well that he mentioned the colonial past and um, the atrocities that happened in Algeria as one of the justifications why they actually take responsibility for and take it in uh, and, and make Islam a, a, a living a living culture inside France, but in a French way, Islam à la Française, in a way. So um, that's kind of interesting that he linked it to the colonial past, I thought. Yeah, because it's really rare, I guess, that um, the French acknowledge their role, I guess. And well, not that they acknowledge it, but just definitely get a lot of people who don't think France did anything wrong. Everyone was in the resistance, huh? <laughs> right. They, they were happy that the French were there. No, it's it's terrible. If we're looking now to more of the economic aspects of the second wave, uh, Wolfgang, you've been kind of looking ahead to debt sustainability, to unemployment becoming more structured, uh, household savings, north-south divides deepening because the travel and tourism industries have been absolutely smashed by the first wave. And you said that, you know, the recovery is looking more like a Nike swoosh now than any other letter of the alphabet. In terms of mid and long-term economic impacts, what, what do you see right now? I think there are a number of overlaying trends, and that's why it's probably not best, uh, easiest described with the, the Nike logo or the, the V letter or the L, L letter. It's an emotional roller coaster. It's exactly. And I think the, the impact on people will be much bigger than these average. I mean, you know, economic data aggregates, they're averages. And, you know, some people get very rich, some people get very poor, and, you're, and you can fool yourself to think that the average hasn't changed. And what is happening is that a lot of people get very poor and some others get very rich in this crisis. It's been a disaster for several seg segments. Um, un un structural unemployment is rising. Debt sustainability is falling. We looked at the Italian Treasury's forecast this week that foresees a very rapid fall in debt to GDP ratios after the crisis, indeed. And we, we, um, we, we think that, that this is not realistic because the, the quality of public spending in Italy, even with the recovery fund, even if everything goes well, and I don't think everything will go well with the recovery fund, but even assuming it did, uh, it, there's no way they would be able to achieve those gains. So we lo we're looking at, at a Europe in which the North-South division is getting worse. The recovery fund isn't going to make a difference. It's better than nothing and certainly uh, important, but the money that Italy is uh, losing from tourism is actually more than the money that Italy stands to gain from the recovery fund. Uh, tourism is about 200 billion uh, a year uh, in terms of its revenue, and the recovery fund money per year is only a fraction of that sum. So one has to be very clear about the relative magnitudes of the money. It's not going to address Italy's solvency problem, and it's not going to address the north-south divide in the in the EU. Now you can't, you know, you can't overload an instrument with this. You can't say it should have done that, but one should be clear that these huge issues uh, remain, and the recovery fund won't won't make a difference. So that is something we are looking at the the future cohesion of the of the EU. We think there has been solidarity in the crisis. I don't think the solidarity will go beyond. Um, will go much beyond it. The the um, you know, Germans are, you know, they saw the pictures on television when Italy, when the virus struck Italy. There was a willingness to help, 
and and uh, and Merkel sensed that willingness, and she she accepted that the recovery fund for that reason because there was a shift of opinion. Uh, but it's a small majority. It's not like the you know it's not like eighty percent of Germans are in favor. So it's more like fifty percent, which is more than there used to be, but it's still not uh, not there. But it, there is no support for a euro bond, some structural spending, uh, you know, a permanent fiscal facility. So the divisions will play out. This will happen. Okay. And my my you know the, my analysis on Italian. That is, it depends to a very large extent whether Italy is indefinitely willing to run large fiscal surpluses, primary surpluses, and I'm not sure that this is the case. So the question of Italian debt sustainability uh, has to be has to be asked. You know, a country that is, has 160 percent debt to GDP, with a radicalization of the political spectrum. We looked at. Uh, this week, we looked at two of the parties of Italy. We looked at the um, the five uh, the five star movement, which is imploding. It's a political you know one could call it a populist movement of the left. They have some support from the right, so it's not easy to classify them in terms of left and right. But they're mostly on the left. And then the uh, Fratelli d'Italia, the successor organization of the former fascists, who uh, are rising, whose support is rising at the expense of the Lega. Uh, these parties you know, will eventually be in power, and while they will not withdraw from the euro and they will not leave the EU, no, none of that will happen. They will act less in the spirit of the EU and less in the spirit of the joint project because they will have less political space to do so. Uh, we've seen this in Italy that every you know, every government gets thrown out at the end of the term. We've seen this. We have never seen. Uh, since the start of the year, not a single government has has been reelected in Italy. Uh, so that is that is a, a clear sign that po- politicians, you know, know that politicians obviously care about their own careers. But every vote in Italy has been a protest vote against whoever is in government. So far, the Italians have always blamed their own their own government. But you know, there will come a time, I'm sure, where they will blame the EU. For their for their miseries, the the EU, criticism of the UN's US capitalism has has risen in Italy, and the so the issue of debt sustainability will come up. Um, you know, my view is that the ECB will be you know constrained in its ability to support Italy. It will continue to try to do this, but up to a point, it cannot it cannot make the difference between sustainability and unsustainability. The idea of monetary debt monetization, I, I don't think is a is a realistic one. So that is going to be an issue that we will have to address. And the the, the sustainability, we also see, you know, more arrogance or more sort of confidence in the north, where you know in the Netherlands, where people that some of the talk in the Netherlands is is qualitatively different from what it used to be. In terms of their, you know, also in terms of their solidarity with the South. So, so let's just come into the next year. I mean, as Susanna was just saying, the second wave was already different from the from the first wave in terms of its quality. Uh, it will be the same on the economy. I mean, the first economic response was one where everybody got supported, but that is not sustainable. So the the unemployment will rise, insolvencies will go up. So the pain hasn't happened yet. And when that happens, we will see what the politics. Well, like, and I don't think the picture of the pandemic producing support for governing parties that will continue. I think governments will find it harder, and opposition parties will uh, will find it easier. And I think that there's going to be a, a swing to the right in in many countries. Yeah. 
Okay, now what else? We got to have like one more chat, I guess, to kind of close this thing down. Did you guys want to get to China? Did you want to talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, let's talk about China. I mean, we, I mean, you've, um, Paige, you've done some work on China this week, um, especially on how the US is trying to put pressure on European countries uh, to fall in line with its policies on, on Huawei. Um, even Germany seems to have moved a step in that direction with a new securities law. Uh, what what have you picked up? Uh, for me, the thing that stood out the most this week was looking at what kind of appeared to be this concerted American campaign to really deliver a very strong message saying it's time to kick Huawei out and to choose a side and it better be the US. So we had, uh, first of all, you know, interestingly, this is British intelligence services, so who can say for sure, but there was a report that had identified critical flaws in Huawei equipment that would put national security interests at risk. And this is kind of like the excuse that you would need to say, well, partnering with Huawei presents too much of a risk to our national security, which might be important for Merkel actually. And so now there's hard evidence, you know, that had been hard to come by before, but it's happening. And then, you know, after um, the Chinese foreign minister's very difficult and awkward visit to Europe, which was meant to be damage control, but wound up uh, just being a giant face plan for him. Uh, you had Mike Pompeo and Keith Cratch coming out to, to the Mediterranean where they lobbied very, very strongly in favor of siding with the U.S. and kicking Huawei out. We saw it in Portugal where they were saying, you know, even though the major mobile operators in Portugal have already said, we're not going to work with Huawei, please relax. You still had American officials out there uh, really sending a very strong message that, uh, you know, you, you better not work with these guys. So it's kind of just repeating the point again, using the same language, using the same talking points. And then again, we got that with the with the Pew Research poll that showed this really, really negative public perception that now exists for China and how public opinion and public perceptions of China have just fallen off really, really sharply in the months since the pandemic. It just seemed to be very well-timed to me to be coming with all of these visits from high-level officials and, and new reports being released. Of course, another story broke in, in the American media little thin on details, but uh, still really interesting that uh, some high-ranking German official had suppressed a report about the risks that China was posing to, to Germany's interests and that there was you know, a little bit too much closeness between German business and the Chinese government and that some official had intervened and made sure that they sat on that report. So this all happened in the span of 10 days or less, I think. It might have even just been one week where just this absolute tsunami of very strong statements and news stories and, and kind of events that were all aligned to the same message, which is that the U.S. and China are not getting along and Europe, you better be on the side of the Americans or it's going to be trouble for you. And we see that, you know, you hear it from people we've spoken to as well, like um, General Ben Hodges, who we were really happy to talk to uh, last week, was saying, you know, it's going to be impossible for the U.S. to do intelligence sharing with European countries if the U.S. doesn't trust uh, European networks. And so you just see these same talking points coming up over and over and over again. And to me, it just seems like America really, really making a, a strong push right now to get everyone on its side, on board. Another really interesting thing for me, it's uh, this notion everyone is saying, well, you know, if Trump loses the election, then things will go back to normal. And you also see a lot of pieces coming out in you know, foreign policy, in American media, and increasingly in European media saying no, that's not the case. There's bipartisan support for a very strong anti-China stance in the U.S. right now. It's not going to change. Biden is going to probably take the same stance, if not 
<laughs> employ the same tactics and, and use the same words as, as President Trump has if he wins. So I think it's just a lot of wishful thinking, I guess, on the part of Europe that things might go back to normal. And I think we're seeing that a lot more, this this kind of message from the US to counter that, that it's not going to get better and you do still need to choose a side. It's interesting for me. I think the European response will be incomplete. Uh, Merkel, Merkel has 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 kind of passed the buck to a, a sort of a security vetting procedure. Mm-hmm. The Germans are not; they're actually not banning Huawei. They're just basically saying that any um, approval for sensitive equipment has to go through a number of stages, and all the intelligence, the relevant intelligence. There's a signal intelligence. There's a communication intelligence. There's the foreign security service. They all have to basically approve. Uh, but also various government ministries have to approve. Um, so th- it just takes one veto to to, to stop it. So they're, they're trying to hope to kill. It's a death by bureaucracy approach to Huawei. But there's a strong support in Germany from the economics ministry and commerce in favor of continuing relationship with China. Merkel supports that too. Uh, she has been, um, you know, she is not somebody who... Uh, uses human rights as a, as a threat to impose uh, uh, sanctions or, you know, and so, so she plays, I think she plays both sides here. So one should not think that Germany is falling behind the US. I think the French position has been clearer on this to face out who are wise. No, I, position. I, if I remember correctly, that was actually, that was the initial position, but there seems to be a change in position. Well, I haven't actually read it up. So I don't know, Paige, whether you got uh, any more intel- intelligence or not. But um, I think that my sound bites were that uh, the strong ban of um, Huawei is actually not as strong as it seems from the first. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's important to look for signals that indicate, to indicate this kind of, I don't want to call it duplicity, but um, this notion that, you know, it might not seem like Europe is making a really strong, decisive pivot away from China. And I think you can see that in Huawei's recent announcements in France. Uh, they're building a factory here right now, and they have plans to double their investments uh, that they've made in France to date over the next four years alone. They've got their spokespeople out talking to French media and saying, we are you know, basically pumping billions into the French economy right now. We're not going anywhere. And I mean, I'm, I definitely was a little, you know, I, my eyebrows raised a little bit when I... Um, was was reading this article, but it's strange that, you know, there was no real official French response to this article that ran with Huawei's spokesperson in France. You know, no one was saying, well, actually, we have decided to phase Huawei out, so they should stop building a factory right now. I mean, business interests always kind of get in the way, don't they? Uh, Okay, well, thank you very much, and thanks, everyone, for joining us. Stay tuned, because next week we will be unpicking and unpacking another European Council summit. Until next time.